Good morning. All right. Ohayo gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here, as always, um, just to worship the Lord and look to grow in our walk with Him. Uh, looking forward to all that the Lord has for us. Before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class. As they make their way out, will the rest of you please open up your Bibles and make your way to the Gospel of Luke chapter 18. Okay, Luke chapter 18. This morning the plan is to finish up chapter 18 as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem. Here in chapter 18, uh, we're going to see Jesus entering into the city of Jericho. Uh, The beginning of chapter 19 deals with some uh, ministry there in the city of Jericho. And then we will come to the triumphal entry uh, a little bit more than halfway through chapter 19. Uh, So the stage is being set uh, for Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem and for him to fulfill the mission that he has been sent upon to go to the city of Jerusalem, to present himself as the Passover Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, in our text this morning, we're going to see how the emphasis upon his work in Jerusalem and all that must be done there becomes, in a sense, uh, the driving force for what, for what Jesus is doing. He's been slowly making his way from Galilee. Uh, he stopped off in the region of Perea. He's had a few trips into Samaria as well. But everything is beginning to come to a head. Jerusalem is just a few miles away, and the time is coming for him to enter into the city of Jerusalem in order to observe the Passover feast and ultimately to lay down his life as the Passover lamb. But before he does those things, we need to finish off chapter 18 and the ministry that the Lord had him doing along the way. This morning, our text is going to be Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. And the title of our message is going to be Ministering to the Blind, Ministering to the Blind. We all rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read our text in its entirety from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you. Just do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Luke continues his account with the following in chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Verse 35. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. And so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise 
to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your word and just allow it to speak to us and and minister to our hearts. And Lord, I uh, do trust, and I hope everybody here has this same expectation, Lord, that you do want to speak to us. Lord, you want to speak to us as a church family, but you want to speak to us as well uh, individually. Lord, you know where each and every one of us are at, the difficulties that we're maybe going through at this time, even the, the triumphs and the victories that we're celebrating. Wherever we are, Lord, we know that you are intimately aware of those things and you want to meet us here in this place. And so, Lord, I pray, give us uh, open ears, open hearts, open minds to receive all that your spirit desires to say. We give you this time and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may have a seat. Now, a very simple reading of our text shows that we are going to be looking at two separate events uh, where Jesus was ministering to a group of blind people. In verses 31 through 34, Jesus addresses his 12 disciples, whom we will see are spiritually blind to the truths Jesus speaks about. Then in verses 35 through 43, we will focus in upon Jesus' ministry to a certain physically blind beggar along the road to Jericho. And so let's look again at our opening verses where Jesus pulls his disciples aside to address their soon arrival into Jerusalem and all that awaits him. Follow along in verse 31 through 33 again. It says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Jesus took his 12 disciples aside and he once again told them about what awaited him as the son of man and how all things written about him by the prophets were coming uh, or were going to be accomplished. Okay. Or as the NIV puts it, fulfilled. Okay. The sense of the word accomplished, it is to be fully accomplished or to be perfected. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. His mission to Jerusalem was one that had been planned from the very beginning, beginning, excuse me, and spoken of throughout the ages by the prophets of the Lord. It was the prophet and psalmist David who wrote in Psalms of how Jesus would be mocked and insulted, stating, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men. And despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Psalm 22 verses 6 through 8. It was the prophet Isaiah who prophesied of his scourging and how he would be spit upon. Proclaiming in Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. The prophet Daniel spoke of how the Messiah would be cut off, which is a euphemism for killed, suffering the death penalty. In Daniel chapter 9, we read, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. You see, the Messiah would be cut off for you and for me. He was sentenced and put to death, yet did nothing deserving of death. And again, it was David 
who wrote even of his resurrection in Psalm 16. There David writes, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. All of these things were written beforehand in accordance with God's great redemption plan for mankind. Jesus knew the plan. He willingly went forward with the plan, knowing exactly what awaited him there in Jerusalem. He was fully committed to God's plan of redemption, knowing the shame, the humiliation, the torture, and the excruciating death that awaited him. Jesus was willing to go through with it all so that we might be that we might be saved, that we may be redeemed, that we may be given access to the Father. The Father didn't have to twist Jesus' arm to get him to do it. He willingly left the throne room of God in his dwelling place in heaven, and he came to us as a babe. The all-powerful God coming in the form of a defenseless, powerless babe. He took on human flesh. He walked among us. He experienced the same temptations that we all experience in these mortal bodies, yet was without sin, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And he willingly laid down his perfect, sinless life for us because of the joy that was set before him, because of his great love for us. You know, really truly is amazing to consider the love of Christ and his willingness to go through so much for people who are so fickle and and so flaky and and so sinful. Even though Jesus knows each of us better than we know ourselves, he knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our every words. He knows our every deed that we've ever done and and yet he still loves us (laughs) that he would even like us okay let alone love us and be willing to go through so much pain and anguish on our behalf it is remarkable it is amazing it is mind-boggling to try and consider the kind of love that jesus christ displayed for us as he went to the cross of calvary well In verses 32 and 33, Jesus listed out seven things that awaited him there in Jerusalem. And we'll go through them rather quickly. The first thing that he mentioned was how he would be delivered to the Gentiles. This was a very important detail in the plan. The chief priests wanted to put Jesus to death, but they really didn't have the power to do so. And so they sought out the help of the Roman governor, one Pontius Pilate. And so that was part of the plan. He needed to be handed over to the Gentiles, to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. In Luke 23, we read of the fulfillment of this very thing as the scribes, the chief priests, all the other religious leaders, the whole multitude of them arose and led Jesus to Pilate. Jesus mentioned how he would be mocked. Again, Luke writes and will tell us of this event that comes, how they mocked Jesus by offering him sour wine. And they said to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus mentioned how he would be insulted and spat upon. The sense of this word insulted, it carries with it the idea of of becoming subject to offensively disrespectful behavior that's outrageously forward and bold. Okay, This happened at the hands of the Roman soldiers who stripped Jesus of his clothes And then they twisted a crown of thorns upon his head. 
They gave him a reed in his hand and they bowed the knee before him, pretending to pay homage to him. And then they turned around and they spat upon him. And then they took the reed from his hand and they proceeded to beat him in the head with it repeatedly over and over again. Jesus said that he would be scourged. This happened by order of Pontius Pilate after the release of Barabbas. To be scourged referred to an investigation, a torture method really, that began with the beating of a prisoner with a whip that often consisted of a handle to which one or more leather cords or thongs were attached. Sometimes these cords were knotted or weighted with pieces of metal, bone, or broken pottery to make the whip more effective as a flesh-cutting instrument upon the back. Jesus also spoke of how he would be killed. Matthew's account, uh, uh, this parallel account of this uh, portion of Scripture here, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, tells us not just that he would be killed, but how he would be killed that he would be crucified. Crucifixion was the Romans' most severe form of execution. Jesus endured the pain and suffering of Calvary's cross, and he willingly laid down his life between two criminals. And if the story ended there, it would be the saddest and most pitiful of all stories. But Jesus said that one more thing would happen. Lastly, Jesus stated how he would rise again on the third day. And Jesus, of course, fulfilled this as well, defeating death, conquering our sin. The angels there at the tomb proclaimed, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. We serve a risen Savior. Jesus, in these verses, very clearly laid out what was going to happen to him when they got to Jerusalem. It was really the heart of God's great redemption plan. Jesus had to come and suffer be put to death upon the cross, and rise three days later, there was no other way for man to be redeemed. And it's quite interesting. He doesn't mix words here. He doesn't speak in parables. You know, we've been going through Luke's gospel. Lately, we've been covering a lot of parables. Jesus doesn't speak to the disciples here in parables. He doesn't use metaphoric language or figurative language. He speaks to the disciples. He told them exactly what was going to happen. And let's read what Luke says about the disciples and their response. Verse 34, it says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. It seems as if these words of Jesus fell upon deaf ears. Okay? They just didn't get it. They were blind. They were blind to the facts, unable to perceive what Jesus was saying. And the crazy thing is that this isn't the first time Jesus has told them of what was going to happen in Jerusalem. This is the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus has mentioned what lies ahead for him in Jerusalem. Earlier in Luke's gospel, after Peter boldly declared that Jesus was the Christ of God, a truth that was given to him by the Father in heaven. Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Later on, after Jesus healed a demon-possessed son and everyone was marveling and in awe of Jesus, he turned to his disciples. He said, let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
Even after that second time, Luke writes of the disciples stating this. He says, but they did not understand this saying. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And so the second time Jesus said, okay, guys, this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to be betrayed. We're going to be handed over. Okay, are you tracking? Let this sink in. Okay, they don't get it. They're blind. And they're too afraid to, to ask what do you mean by all of that? And so they remain in ignorance. Three separate occasions, Jesus pulled his disciples aside and he tried to reveal to them what was to come, what his mission was. And each time they didn't get it. Each time they failed to understand the lesson he was teaching them. The picture Jesus was portraying of the Son of Man being betrayed and handed over just didn't line up with their understanding of what the Messiah was to do. They had their own interpretation of how things were going to play out. They had their own expectations. And so when Jesus started talking about suffering and death and of a resurrection, it didn't make any sense to them. In their mind's eyes, the Messiah was going to be coming as this conquering king. He was going to come in and free them from the Roman oppression, set up this earthly kingdom. Hey, he was not going to be a suffering servant. The picture of a suffering servant, it did not match what they were hoping for, what they were anticipating from Jesus. And we know that this is what they were thinking. For immediately after this section in the parallel accounts, if you look at Matthew and Mark right after this portion of Scripture where Jesus talks to them about what's to happen in Jerusalem, we read of how James and John, they tried to make a power play for seats next to Jesus in his kingdom. While Jesus was talking about being delivered up to the Gentiles, mocked, insulted, spat upon, scourged, killed, and raised from the dead, the disciples were concerned about seats of power in the coming kingdom. They got their mom to come in and say, hey, ask Jesus if we can be on the right and on the left when he enters into his kingdom. You know, I want to be the the right-hand man and the left-hand man of Jesus. This scourging and dying and now that does not line up with their view guys we have to be careful that we don't fall into the same trap as the disciples here because sometimes our own preconceived ideas and notions they can hinder us from seeing clearly something that the lord's trying to teach us if god seems to be trying to teach you the same lesson over and over again, and you just aren't getting it, perhaps it's an indication that something you are holding on to is keeping you from understanding what the Lord's trying to say. Maybe it's time to let go of some of those preconceived ideas and and notions and, and take a fresh look at something. Maybe we'll be able to see things from a different perspective, from a different point of view that will allow us to grasp and understand what God's trying to show us. The lesson Jesus was trying to teach them was the heart of the gospel message. You see, without the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. There is no hope for us. We are all still lost in our sins. This was a very important message, but it was one the disciples were spiritually blind to because of their own preconceived ideas and notions. It just did not fit what they thought the Messiah was going to come and and do. And it wouldn't be until after the resurrection when Jesus meets with them once again and he explains these things to them that they will finally get it. He's going to meet them. He says, remember, I told you these things. I told you that this is what's going to happen. And they're like, 
oh yeah, now now it makes sense. <laughs> but they're in the dark here, spiritually blind. Let's move on to our second section of Scripture dealing with the ministry to the physically blind. Read with me verses 35 through 37. It says, Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. And so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Jesus and his disciples, they've entered into and are traveling through the city of Jericho here. That means that Jesus and his disciples have exited the region of Perea, where we've been covering from Luke chapter 9 all the way through most of chapter 18. Um, They've crossed over the Jordan River. We know this because the city of Jericho is located about five miles west of the Jordan River, while the region of Perea is on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, in Jesus' day, there was actually two cities named Jericho. There was the old city of Jericho that was pretty much in ruins, and the new city of Jericho, which was about a mile further down the road, where Herod the Great and his successors built a lavish winter palace. Jericho is probably best known uh, for the Old Testament account of Joshua and the Israelites marching around the city of Jericho. You guys are all familiar with that portion, right? You guys from Sunday school may remember that. Uh, you know, they march around the city and the walls come tumbling down. Uh, it's in Joshua chapter 6. We read about that. But the city has actually been inhabited off and on throughout history. Even today, the city still stands. It's actually under Palestinian control. We, when we went to Israel as a church, uh, we went on a tour and our bus pulled over and our tour guide said, that's Jericho. We can't go there because it's under Palestinian control. So we said, okay. So, but it's still there today. Uh, a city, people live there, uh, the city of Jericho. Now, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was a well-traveled road, but it was also a very dangerous road, uh, road because of thieves and robbers. The parable of the Good Samaritan and how a certain man fell among thieves, was stripped of his clothing, wounded, left half dead, uh, has as its setting this very road, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jericho was the only city that a traveler would pass through when going up from the Jordan Valley to Jerusalem. And because of this, he would see a lot of traffic in and out of the city. And though we're not given much information about this blind beggar in Luke's gospel, it's in Mark's gospel we're able to at least uh, understand and know the name of this blind beggar. For there in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, we're told that this blind beggar's name was Bartimaeus. Okay? Blind Bartimaeus. Now, for Bartimaeus, this would be a, a good time of year for him. Because of the Jewish festivals, there would be an increase in foot traffic, a number of people passing through um, the city, uh, making their way into Jerusalem. The Passover feast, which is right before them, was one of the mandatory feasts that all Jews were required to come into Jerusalem, offer their sacrifice. And so there would be a lot more people passing through, a lot more foot traffic, if you will. Not only would there be an increase in traffic, but there would also be amongst many of the people a heart that was maybe a little bit more sensitive to the needs of others. After all, these people, they are headed to the temple to make an offering to the Lord. How could they go to the temple and ask God to bless them when they didn't help out the blind beggar on the side of the road, right? And so uh, that's how oftentimes people think, okay? We think we need to 
do something good in order to impress God. Well, if I'm going to go to church, I better do something really good, you know, so that God's impressed with me, right? Um, it's how we often do think, but it's the wrong way to think. Okay? We shouldn't think that way because that's not how God operates. I hope not to burst any bubbles here, but God is not impressed by us. God is not impressed by our good deeds um, and our actions. Uh, and um, he does not bless us uh, because of us, but he blesses us because he loves us. Um, not not because, you know, he owes us, you know. Oh, well, I did this, God. You know, I gave some some alms on my way in here, Lord, to that blind beggar on the road. So, you know, I hope that you will take care of me now, too. <laughs> That's not how it works. Okay? But unfortunately, oftentimes that is how we think that God uh, could be impressed by us. Because humanity aims to impress, it's very likely that people would be more inclined to throw a few coins toward Bartimaeus on their way up to the temple during this time of year. And so by and large, we would say for Bartimaeus, this is a very important time for him. Um, it's an opportunity for him to uh, receive more than what he normally would as a beggar. And I want you guys um, to imagine the scene, if you will. I often try and uh, imagine myself within the scriptures as I read through them. Bartimaeus is there on the roadside, okay? And he starts to hear a large group, okay? A, a multitude of people begin to make their way through the city. And because he was blind, it's very likely that Bartimaeus had a more acute sense of hearing than most. And as he heard the multitude making their way down the road, he knew something was different about this particular group. He could tell that this was no ordinary traveling multitude. And so Bartimaeus started asking around, hey, you know, what's, what's all the commotion about, right? What's the deal with this multitude passing by? What does it mean? And that's when he hears that it was none other than Jesus of Nazareth passing by and the multitude was following after him. Let's read our next verse to see how blind Bartimaeus responds to this news about Jesus passing before him. Read verse 38. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Once Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's obvious that Bartimaeus has heard about Jesus. I imagine even that he's heard of all the miraculous things he's done for so many people over the last three years or so of his public ministry. He's heard of the healings. I'm sure he's thought to himself, how awesome it would be to have an opportunity to be touched by Jesus, to be healed of his blindness. Now, what Bartimaeus says here is very revealing. And it shows to us his true conviction regarding who Jesus is. The term son of David was a messianic title. It was a title used to refer to the promised son of David that would come and establish an eternal throne. The promise was given back uh, in chapter or in Second Samuel chapter seven to David, when Nathan came to David and informed him of the word of the Lord, telling David, "When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." Okay, verse sixteen says, "And your house and your kingdom shall be established." forever before you your throne shall be established forever this was an eternal kingdom that would be set up this was a very specific phrase reserved for speaking of the messiah 
So Bartimaeus was under the conviction that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He no doubt had heard about his teachings, his miracles. He was certain as to who this man was. And I, myself, have little doubt that he heard of how Jesus boldly proclaimed at the outset of his ministry, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus read from that portion of scripture in Isaiah and he proclaimed today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am very confident word of that incident and his subsequent miracles have reached the acute ear of this blind Bartimaeus. Not only is Bartimaeus convinced of who Jesus is, he also has a proper understanding of what he needs from Jesus. It is interesting to consider the contrast between the disciples and Bartimaeus. Last week, if you were with us, you may recall how we read of how Peter wanted to know what was in store for him and the other disciples, what they were going to get from Jesus for following after him. We know that right before this incident, James and John tried a power play to secure for themselves the seats next to Jesus in his kingdom. The disciples, they came to Jesus wanting position, power, uh, we might say prominence. They didn't understand what they were asking. They didn't know their true need. But Bartimaeus, a blind beggar has a more heightened sense of who Jesus is and what he needs from him. Bartimaeus doesn't come looking for positions or power. He wants and cries out for mercy. Mercy. He needs it. He calls out after it. Without any sense of entitlement, he comes to Jesus and he begs for mercy. Okay, Not getting what he knows he deserves. Mercy is what he needed. He needed the son of David, the Messiah, to shower upon him God's gracious mercy. He knew he was deserving of judgment, but he pleaded for mercy. It's interesting to consider that this blind man saw more clearly than most everyone else there in the multitude. You see, you don't need to see with your eyes to know who Jesus is. This blind man saw him so clearly. He knew who he was. He knew what he needed from him. And he was convinced. You know, there are many out there that try to claim that seeing is believing. But that is a contradiction to what the Scriptures teach us. Seeing is not believing. Okay. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our eyes are open so that we may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Coming to faith in Christ, it opens our eyes to a whole new world. Our perception changes and we begin to see things as the Lord sees them. Well, not everyone was excited about Bartimaeus' crying out. Okay, let's read our next verse and hear what some of the other people were saying to him. Verse 39. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. I love it. Okay. 
When Bartimaeus first called out to Jesus, many of the people, probably those from the multitude, maybe even some of the disciples themselves, it wouldn't be the first time they tried to get people to leave Jesus alone. They told Bartimaeus to basically keep it down, be quiet, zip it. (laughs) We aren't told specifically why they told him to be silent. It could have been because he was being so loud. Maybe they thought he was being obnoxious or rude. Or maybe it could have been because they didn't agree with what he was saying, identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Either way, we see that Bartimaeus would not be silenced. He would not keep his peace. He would not be denied this opportunity to see Jesus. And he cried out all the more. His cry was the same as before, but he just said it louder and louder, repeated himself over and over again. The verb here, cried out, is in the imperfect sense. It means he was crying out again and again. He was being louder and louder. He was determined. He would not be denied. He was desperate. He had no other desire. I will be heard by Jesus. And I believe herein lies a principle I believe to be true for us. Desperate people do not permit the crowd to keep them from Jesus. People who are desperate and determined will not allow the crowd of naysayers to keep them from calling out to Jesus. In today's world, there are a lot of people that would love to silence the Christian voice. There are a lot of people that would like us to quit all this talk about Jesus. But when we are as desperate for Jesus as this blind beggar Bartimaeus was. We won't care at all about what the masses say. We won't care if they don't like it, and we won't care if they're offended by us calling out to Jesus. We will cry out to Jesus because we know that He is our only hope. He is this world's only hope. We have the answer to what remedies this world. The answer to solving this world's problem is to get people to start crying out to Jesus. We need to be the ones that are leading the pack, crying out to Jesus, understanding our need for Him. As Bartimaeus continued to cry out over and over again, something happened. Let's read verse 40 and 41. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Again, imagine, if you will, from Bartimaeus' uh, point of view. Actually, he doesn't have a view. You know, his mind sight. <laughs> You're blind. You can't see a thing. You hear everything. You hear the crowds of people passing by. You hear the excitement and the voices of the people. You, you inquire as to you know, what all the ruckus is about. And you hear that it's... It's all about Jesus, and you realize that this is your chance. And you begin to cry out for Jesus, and you cry out over and over again, but you don't hear a response from Jesus. All you hear is people around you saying, hey, keep it quiet. You know, zip it, you know, shut your mouth, you know. You don't know exactly what's going on as you cry out louder and louder, ignoring those people who are telling you to be quiet. You don't know exactly why, but the the foot traffic is slowing. The voices of all the multitude, they begin to hush themselves. The crowd is, is being silenced, and you start to hear faint whisperings coming closer and closer as, as word is traveling through the crowd. Something's happening, but you don't know exactly what it is. 
Has Jesus heard his cry? Did did he actually stop? You see, though there were great multitudes of people there that day traveling along the road to Jerusalem, and I'm sure the noise levels were very high, Jesus heard the heartfelt cries of a sincere and genuine heart that day. And that is just as true today as it is as, true today as it was that day. The same Jesus who stopped the masses and heard this genuine cry of Bartimaeus's heart is still able to hear the cry of one genuine heart calling out to him. He hears you. As you cry out to him, know that. Be confident of that. He hears you. And he'll do what is necessary to stop what's going on all around to hear from you. He's not too busy. He's never too busy. Longs to hear from us. Though his face was set like flint towards Jerusalem and the cross, all it took was one heartfelt cry to make him stop in his tracks and respond to Bartimaeus' cry. Jesus heard Bartimaeus. He stood still. He commanded that he be brought to him. And when he arrived before him, Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus wanted to take care of Barnabas. He loved him. He had compassion towards him. He wanted to meet this man's needs and desires. He came to serve, not to be served. And so he asked, what do you want me to do for you? Now you may think, why would Jesus ask such a silly question? Obviously, the man is blind. He wants to be able to see, right? Also, Jesus is God. He already knows what he wants. He knows his very thoughts. Okay, Why would he ask him this question? I believe Jesus wanted this man to articulate to him what he wanted Jesus to do for him. And I think he wanted Bartimaeus to speak it forth for all around him to hear that it may be used as a witness for the rest of the crowd that his faith might be on full display. It wasn't so much for Bartimaeus' own good as it was for the good of everyone else that was there amongst the multitude that would hear him cry out, say, this is what I need from you, Jesus, and to see Jesus meet that need. Now, I want you guys to think about that question, though. And I want you to really ponder it. If you were called into the presence of Jesus and he asked you this very simple question, What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer? You know, at first, I thought the answer was really easy. Oh, this is what I would ask. You know, Jesus said, what do you want from me? I got it. And then I thought, the more I I thought about it, the more I began to realize that, well, you know, he's already given me everything that I need. Right? He's already given me that promise. He's already provided everything necessary to to mold and and shape me into the image to promise to to complete that work that he's began in me. Would I want him to maybe expedite the timeline? You know, would I want him to hurry up the process or or do do I trust him? Do I believe that he actually has my very best at heart and everything that he brings my way in the situations that we find ourselves in today? And we might think, I mean, I wish this is what I would ask for to be done with this or to be beyond this? Or, or do we trust and say, you know what? God, I, I trust you're working in this. And, and I'm going to miss out on something if I were to ask you to not have me go through this. How would we best answer 
that question. I want you guys to think about it. Okay? How would you answer if Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? It's a more challenging question than you may initially think. Well, Bartimaeus, he didn't have any problems answering this question. He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. It's worth noting that Bartimaeus referred to Jesus as Lord before he was healed, before Jesus had touched him, before Jesus had really done anything other than call to him. But that was enough for Bartimaeus. Jesus' calling of Bartimaeus to come to him was enough for Bartimaeus to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of his life. When Jesus asked him what he wanted, Bartimaeus' great desire was to get out of this impenetrable darkness that defined his life. Presumably, he had lived most of his life in darkness. He wanted to escape. He wanted to leave his life of darkness behind him and enter into the light. He wanted to be able to see. You know, research shows that the loss of sight is feared more than the loss of any other of our senses. In fact, one report I came across didn't limit it to just sensory deprivation, but to all long-term health conditions. 44% of people surveyed said they feared losing their sight more than any other long-term health condition, feared more than Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease or heart disease, cancer. People are afraid that they will become blind. People fear physical darkness. It's a very scary and vulnerable place to be. You fear what would or, or could happen to you when you can't see anything around you. People greatly fear physical darkness. And unfortunately, they pay very little attention to spiritual darkness. They fail to realize something very crucial Spiritual darkness should be feared far more than any sort of physical darkness because it is spiritual darkness that leads to an eternity of physical darkness in hell. Hell is aptly referred to as outer darkness. God is light and in hell you will be eternally separated from God. There is no light in hell. It is complete utter darkness and that is the destiny of all who remain in spiritual darkness. We are born into sin, into spiritual darkness. And apart from coming to Christ, there is no way to become spiritually enlightened. Okay? It doesn't matter how much praying you do or how much meditation you do or how much you're able to you know, quiet yourself or whatever uh, people try and do to become enlightened nowadays. Spiritual enlightenment, enlightenment only comes... When Jesus Christ enters into your life, he is the light of the world. Jesus said so in John chapter 8, verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The problem is, according to John chapter 3, verse 19, the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People choose sin over a savior and they decide to remain in darkness rather than entering into the light. Bartimaeus seemingly spent his whole life in darkness and he desperately wanted to escape. He knew Jesus was able to bring him into the light and satisfy his needs, his desire. Let's read how Jesus responds to Bartimaeus in verse 42. 
It says, then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Jesus cured uh, him of his blindness, declaring, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Literally what Jesus said is, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. The phrase has made well is one word in the Greek. It's the word sozo, and it means to save or to deliver, to make whole or to preserve safe from danger, loss, or destruction. The faith of Bartimaeus saved him. And the same is true for us. We are saved from the penalty of our sin through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary and his resurrection from the dead. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by special words or by our worth. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Faith is what is needed and faith is what blind Bartimaeus displayed. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Ephesians tells us that it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Blind Bartimaeus was saved. He was made whole based upon his faith in God. And look what else happened in response to this healing in our final verse, verse 43. It says, And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Bartimaeus immediately received his sight, and the very first thing I imagine he saw was the face of Jesus. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I imagine everything else he looked at after that paled in comparison. Three things happened in our text immediately following Bartimaeus' healing. One, we're told that Bartimaeus followed Jesus. He did not go selfishly on his way when his need was met, but he committed himself to following Jesus. Whatever way Jesus was going was the way he was going to go. Bartimaeus committed his ways to the Lord. Jesus' way became his own way. And this is how it should be for all of those who have experienced the healing touch of salvation upon their lives. Our ways must become his ways. We are no longer our own. We are His, and what we have, we willingly lay down to follow after Him. Number two, not only did Bartimaeus commit his life to following Jesus, he also glorified God. Bartimaeus gave praise to where praise was due. He knew that the healing he had received was all a miraculous work of God. It wasn't about Him. He didn't earn this work or merit it. He wasn't owed it because he was dealt such a a bad hand, a a hard life, and then, you know, God owed this to him. No, not at all, okay? It was a work of God's grace and mercy upon his life, and therefore the only proper response was to glorify God, to praise him. And I believe, again, our response should be the same. When we experience the healing touch of salvation upon our lives, not only should we make his ways our ways, but we should also be one who readily acknowledges and praises God for His work in us. We are all a a work of God's grace. God alone deserves all the praise, honor, and glory for His work in us. The last thing we see happen in our text is that all the rest of the people joined in with Bartimaeus in giving praise to God. You see, as we yield our lives to the Lord and we praise Him, we allow Him to work in us and through us, other people will take notice. 
This man, blind Bartimaeus, was once in darkness, but had been brought into the light of Christ. And that light was used to shine brightly for all those around him. You know, Jesus said that we are the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. They don't look at you and say, oh man, you're so awesome. You're so wonderful. Man, God, you know, no, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about our Father in heaven. God wants to shine through us to use our lives as an example for others to follow after, that when others see the work of God and what He's done in us, that they would see it and they would join with us in giving praise, honor, and glory to Him. May we be like Bartimaeus here, who, though physically blind, had enough sight to see who Jesus was, enough sight to see and understand what he needed from Jesus, and he had the faith to believe that Jesus could meet all of his needs. May we be like blind Bartimaeus here, who unashamedly praised God, unashamedly called out to him, not caring at all about what other people were saying, and he allowed God just to work in his life, and, and he praised God for that work that he had done, and it led others to doing the same. May our lives be the kind of lives that lead others to praise, honor, and glorify Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, text. That, um, though the disciples had physical sight, Lord, they were spiritually blind to these truths because they had their own preconceived ideas, their own notions of what you were going to do, what your ministry would be like as the Messiah. Lord, and they missed out on these truths that you are trying to impart to them. Lord, I pray that we would not suffer the same fate, Lord, that we would not miss out on something you're wanting to teach us, something you want to show us because we have our own preconceived ideas and notions of how you will work and how you won't work and how you do things and how you don't do things. May we just be open to how your spirit leads and guides May we be open to that work you want to do in us and through us. And Lord, I pray that we would be more and more like Bartimaeus. Though physically blind, he had the insight and knowledge to know who you are, what you could do for him. Lord, we thank you that we were once like Bartimaeus. We were once in darkness, Lord, and you've brought us into the light. And Lord, I pray that we would glorify you, Lord, that we would praise you, that we would follow after you, because of your great love for us, because of what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that as we follow you and as we praise you, that those around us would see you and your work in our hearts and lives, that they would desire the same thing for themselves. And Lord, that they would follow in like manner, giving their lives to you and and so churn their hearts to you and praise you and glorify you as well. And so Lord, use us as you see fit, Lord, as we consider that question that you presented to Bartimaeus, I pray that you would give us insight what would be best for us, Lord? 
If we were to ask, if you were to present us that question, Lord, what can you do for us, Lord? I pray that we would have sincere hearts and allow you to do that work in us that you desire to do. So we yield ourselves to you and that work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.